Today on The Black Goat, why you shouldn't go to conferences, we consider some arguments against conferences as they're currently done, and a letter about who follows who on Twitter. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And I'm uh, about to spend a week alone at home. And this is an unusual experience for me. My wife and son are leaving town. What should I do with myself? (laughs) Um, Well, so technically, I don't live alone. I have a roommate. Um, But it's I almost like I live alone because my roommate is very introverted and likes a lot of space. <laughs> and it's like very, very accepted that we'll walk, you know, into the house and out of the house without acknowledging each other's existence. Um, that would never happen with my eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suspect your, eight, your, your eight-year-old and my roommate are very different people. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like when... When this, you know, Kristen takes our son out of town sometimes. They travel together to visit family and whatever. When this has happened before, very often, like, I, like, binge on Netflix mm-hmm. and get takeout and kind of, like, just, like, stop shaving and, you know, just kind of become, like, a slug. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, that basically covers everything I was going to say. Uh, watch <laughs> a lot of Netflix, sleep, do nothing, eat random things change your mind at the last minute, sleep diagonally in the bed, and stop shaving. <laughs> That's, there There we go, yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're, yeah, sleep diagonally on the bed. That's, you know, I'm so conditioned by years of, like, sharing a bed that I, I like, when I'm in a hotel on my own, I have to sleep on the side of the bed. Like, it's mm. weird to sleep in the middle of a bed for me. Yeah. It's really strange. I think that change your mind at the last minute is, like, one of my favorite things about living alone. Like, I can, like, have decided that I was going to, like, get takeout for dinner, and then at the last minute I can be like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm not even going to eat dinner. I'm just going to, like, snack on – I'm going to, like, have an avocado, and then in half an hour I'm going to have, like, whatever, and then I'll uh-huh. go to the farmer's market and get something. I love, yeah. like, just being able to not have plans and it not affect anybody. I think I would definitely, like, when Judah's not around, um, things that I do differently are, like, I guess, like, I, like, take up more space, you know, and, like, don't don't worry about, like, whether I may be, like, bothering her. Um, but I also, like, eat weird stuff that I would be embarrassed to have somebody see me yeah. eat. And just generally, like... If there's a show I want to watch, I can watch, like, 10 minutes of it and then go do something else and then watch 10 more minutes. Like, I just like not having to, like, I don't know, just, yeah, being able to do things on a random schedule and random order. Do you guys ever, when you're alone, get, like, trapped between different things where you can't do any of them? Like, I find that this happens to me sometimes, especially in the summertime at work when there's, like, I'm in my office, but I have, like, zero or one thing on my schedule. And it'll get to be, like lunchtime and I'm not quite I'll get into the state where like I'm not hungry enough to like make myself get up and go get lunch but I'm sort of feeling low energy and I feel like well I can't I can't get anything done until I eat and then I'll like an hour later I'll be like what the fuck just happened that's, to that but that's hour another thing. like that's why do nothing was on my list because I feel like <laughs> if I'm living with somebody I'm too embarrassed to just literally sit yeah. on the couch and do nothing or sit on my back porch and do nothing Mm-hmm. But it's like one of the things like, yeah, it won't it won't last long. I'll start feeling guilty pretty quickly. But it's one of the nice things. Where I'm like, yeah, I have 15 or 20 minutes till my next thing. I could just literally sit and do nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like It's so nice. And there's no one to see me doing it. And yeah. I feel like that's like an important thing that we've lost from our lives. And I'm yeah. I blame phones. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like I almost never just sit and do nothing. And even if I'm like waiting in line somewhere. I'm not yeah. just like thinking. I it's my impulse is to go to my phone. I, I just had a, important. I just had a thyroid ultrasound where you just like lay there and stare at the ceiling for 25 minutes and like you can't be on your phone. You can't do anything. So it's really interesting to be like, what am I gonna think about? I'm gonna think about yeah. the patterns in the ceiling and then like, uh-huh. yeah. But actually, but yeah. also having pets is a really good way to do nothing because I'll just like tell myself I'm hanging out in the backyard with my dog. Like my dog doesn't really care if I'm in the backyard with him, but then I'm like, technically I'm not doing nothing. Or I'll go, I'll be like, I'll, I'm just gonna lay in bed because my cats like to like come lay with me when I'm in bed, so they get time with me, which they don't get a lot now that there's a dog. 
So like I f- I'm like I'm checking something off my list by like just laying in bed yeah. or sitting in the backyard or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel like there's. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me, so give me. I'm, one is I'm like write listening to music really loud throughout the oh, entire yes. house. Oh my gosh, yeah. I love doing that so much. Um, and then another is like Samin sort of said this like yeah, eating and sleeping at weird times. Like I I think that. I'm too embarrassed to like go to sleep at 7 p.m. if my roommate is home. Um, but if she's not, like sometimes I really like going to bed at 7 p.m. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like I I feel like all this stuff like lasts me like all the excitement about being alone lasts me maybe like half a day or so, and then you know like because it's like things are so busy, especially having a kid in the house that you know you often find yourself thinking like God I. I would love to just have like, you know, half a day to myself or whatever. Um, and then like they're gone and I'll, I'll do that. Like the playing loud music is one of my things because I can't play music loud when we're all home uh, as loud as I would like to. Um, but then, yeah, like a half day later, I'm like, oh, OK, I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think it takes a lot of imagination. That's part of the problem. And it, it's taken me a while, I think, of living alone to like figure out like, how cool would it be at like 10 30 a.m to go get my ipad and play sudoku while sitting in the backyard like that would be amazing <laughs> but like it wouldn't even occur to me until like yeah. you know i start i play sudoku before i go to bed and then so then like occasionally i'll be like wait maybe i would enjoy playing sudoku outside of that time but like it really requires a stretch of my imagination to be like i could do it at 10 30 a.m like that would be okay mm-hmm. there's no police that's gonna like arrest me for doing that yeah. yeah, I've got all these habits that have come from turn, turning into, like, a boring, normal, middle-aged man where, like, you know, yeah, when I was in my 20s and I didn't have a kid and I, you know, was single or, or just dating or whatever, and in grad school where it's, like, you have to work a lot, but you can kind of work whenever you want to outside of certain things, and so I was just much more comfortable, like, drifting in and out of different activities, and, and now I feel like you know, I like, I have much more kind of like close to traditional business hour schedule where I go in in the morning and I'm done in, at night. Um, because because of the rhythms of like having a family with, you know, it's like my child needs me and, and whatever. And so when they're out of town, I like I can't break out of that habit right away. So I'll, I'll still like, you know, wake up at nine. And you know, if I'm at work and five o'clock rolls around, even if I'm like on a roll in the middle of something, I'll feel like I have to go home or, or and if I'm not getting anything done, I'll feel like I well, I need to stay and try to be productive. Where like when I was younger, if I stopped being productive, I would stop working and then I'd just pick up again when I felt productive again, which was maybe not the best thing either. But it's different. Will you have like, um, a chance to do more social stuff than you would normally do? Like, is that a perk of... Well, so that that's the funny thing. My, my wife and I are totally different on this. When when I'm gone and if she's, like, alone or, you know, even if our son's around, like, during the school year or whatever, when she has unstructured time available, like, she does stuff. She, like, gets together with her friends and, and whatever. <laughs> I feel like I just, like, you know, like, sit on the couch in my underwear drinking <laughs> beer and watching stranger things or whatever which is that why sounds I did the last so great time. <laughs> so yeah but then like i don't yeah i should probably like call up one of my friends and be like hey do you want to mm-hmm. do you want to do something i don't know yeah, yeah that's I'm interesting i mean that could be another topic is like yeah should you socialize just because it's a good thing for humans to do like exercising like if i <laughs> if i go a long time and i haven't socialized and i'm like huh Maybe I need to like flex that muscle, but if I don't feel the need, if I don't feel like a lack, then should you? You know, there there's a funny parallel because although like, you know, with exercise I actively don't want to do it where and right. with like socializing it's more like eh, I'm sort of, but but both what both have in common is that like I'm more glad I did it afterwards than I'm like yeah. feeling the urge to do it beforehand, if that makes yeah. any sense. Like I'm always glad it's kind of amazing that asymmetry like i went and played sand volleyball last night which i was dreading just because it's like kind of exercise and it's socializing with people i don't know and that makes me anxious and stuff and i knew that i would like it and i love sand volleyball it's maybe my favorite sport to play such a good sport and like i loved it but i and i knew that that right i knew the asymmetry and i still couldn't like get excited about it i still made myself go which i'm glad i did but 
you know, there's a not to totally nerd out and turn this into a psychology theory, but there's a there's a theory of motivation, right? Which, which uh, it's is a Kent Barrage, I think. Um, the idea that there's you know colloquially calls it like a liking system and a wanting system, right, right. and and how like usually we think of those yeah usually we think of those as the same thing but they can come apart and they you know he talks a lot about like addiction Addiction, being a case where you keep wanting after you stop liking and whatever and it's 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 a little bit like that with exercise and i guess even with socializing this feels like a revelation to me i don't know this work and i'm like what he gave a really good talk here last year yeah it's really cool wow yeah yeah i think both there's examples of both without the other which are really fascinating yeah. Cool. I mean, I feel like if there's any if there's any social and personality psychology students listening, like that theory has been applied in like addiction and sexual behavior. I feel like there is a big opportunity to like see if it extends into social life because I, I you don't see it as much in sort of like more social psyche, like relationships and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it would be. I don't know. Or maybe maybe I just don't know. Maybe there is a literature on that that I don't know. But I feel like I, I you see it more in the kind of behavioral neuroscience world than you do in, in sort mm-hmm. of uh, social and personality. So anyway, if anyone's listening, <laughs> just throw a shout out in your dissertation acknowledgments if you if you run with this one. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that could be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, should we? Well, good uh, luck with this, Sanjay. Yeah. Oh, no, I know my my terrible situation. I have all this free time. What do I do with it? You're lucky this will come out after because otherwise you'd be getting a bunch of review requests. That's oh, that's true. Yeah. No. uh, Anyone listening by the time you hear this, it's over. I don't have any time left. Please don't send me shit. Okay. Should we do our letter? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Dear Black Goats, the following questions concern the scientific Twitter sphere. Good communication among scientists is important for scientific progress, and now I believe that Twitter is becoming a more and more important communicative tool for getting research out and discussing scientific ideas. However, I'm a postdoc, and neither my supervisor nor my current collaborators use Twitter very much. This makes me rather Twitter-isolated. I experience that many more experienced researchers do not follow me back, and this is even though we, um, in the bio, have very closely aligned research interests. I wonder what you all think about this tendency of not following most people back. Why not first hear them out and then mute them if their tweets are overwhelming or irrelevant to your interests? Lastly, from an open science perspective, do you think that this imbalance on Twitter power, or sorry, of Twitter power can be problematic, especially since preprints and articles are boosted by being mentioned in tweets? So is it not important that not only a few have the power, i.e. those loud on Twitter, from famous universities, etc.? Kind regards from someone who believes that listening to each other is important for scientific progress. Well, I'll so let I you think guys this start is, since you since are <laughs> much more well versed in Twitter than me. Are you gonna Are you gonna talk about following people back on Instagram, Alexa? <laughs> so I, mean, I think this, this is a Snapchat question. Yeah. <laughs> I think this raises a bunch of really interesting issues. So I, I mean, I agree with the premise that Twitter is becoming. A bigger part of and just in general social media I mean you know and and I think overall it has the potential to be a lot of good for science that we have more ways of communicating we have less formal more frequent etc um, so so in general yes and I think you know and what I would also say is that when something's new there's a chance I think people are sometimes kind of optimistic early on they're sort of idealistic about new technologies and and new media and that kind of thing that oh this is going to revolutionize the world um and and there's sometimes because of what people carry into things with them and sometimes just because of the structure of things that we don't realize that like a lot of times they end up reproducing hierarchy they end up reproducing inequality etc etc um that's certainly the case with social media when you look at I mean I've done a little bit I'm starting to do a little bit of social media research and I you know follow some of it and it's like you see long tail distributions everywhere when you look at Mm -hmm. like how many followers people have it's not a normal distribution it's a um, almost everybody has very few and a few people have a lot Um, and you look at traffic and you look at everything that kind of those distributions are are just ubiquitous Um, and on Twitter, on Facebook, etc. Et so, so those are the sort of general issues I think that are that are important. The specific issue, like, what do you do if you're a new 
researcher, an early career researcher, and you're trying to break in? And, and what do you do if you're a more established researcher, either in the traditional sense of established or on social media, you know, you have a lot of followers or a high degree account in some other way? Like what, what sort of expectations go with that? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, what I would say is like as so I've got um, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this. I've got like 13,000 Twitter followers and, and I've reached a point where it's just literally not. And it, it's one of those things that it, it's like there's it's a Matthew effect that growth begets growth. And so I don't have an opportunity to look at the like when I when Twitter gives me the notification that like you know new accounts followed you I just don't have the time to like go and look at their bios and and see what they are go read down their timelines because it it kind of happens too much and so you know I've thought about this a lot like you know who do I follow back on Twitter and and how do I do that and so they're you know Oftentimes, for me, it's like having interesting interactions with people. Twitter's an interactive medium. And, and this person described having very few tweets on their timeline. And I mean, one of the things that, one of the ways I end up following people is that I have an interesting conversation with them sometimes. Um, uh, that's probably one of, the, one of the main ways, is it's through the interaction. It's not through seeing that somebody followed me. Um, mm mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Celine? So it's interesting because when I first started using Twitter, it never occurred to me that the default should be to follow people back. And since then, of course, the issue has been raised and I've thought about it a little bit more. But I never, I was never tempted by that as my default. Like I never seriously considered following people back because they followed me. And I think like my conscious explanation, but it might be rationalization, is that it doesn't feel authentic. Like I if I'm going to follow you, I want it to mean something. Um, like I want to have actually like thought about it and decided that I want to follow you. And I also, I try to read almost everything on my Twitter feed. Um, not maybe that's, I try to scroll through everything and try to get to the point where I recognize the tweets I'd read last time. Um, I don't read them all, but I scroll through them all most of the time, except like when I'm on vacation or things like that. So like, I feel like if I followed a lot more people, maybe that would be nice for them to have one more follower, but then it wouldn't mean much because I wouldn't actually see most of their tweets. The other thing is I really, really hate unfollowing people. I heard that there's like software where you can track who unfollows you. So I think I've almost literally never unfollowed somebody. So that's another reason why I'm like more cautious about who I follow. Um, But I, so I think that I don't think following is a way to tackle the Twitter imbalance, or at least that's not the approach I would choose as the, the number one way to tackle this imbalance. I think, well, first I want to point out that I think this imbalance exists offline a lot too, like in terms of what papers get read, the more famous people get read more, more senior people get read more, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think Twitter actually probably helps more than it hurts with that, but I do agree that that hierarchy and imbalance is still there on Twitter. But I think kind of what you said, Sanjay, that I think, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you were saying something similar that those of us who have a bigger platform and more influence should be very intentional about what we choose to amplify. So that doesn't, I don't know what exactly we should be amplifying. I don't know on what dimensions, but we should think about it. And I, yeah. I think I try to retweet. I think I, I don't retweet things that are by already famous people that have already been retweeted a bunch of times. That's pretty rare that I'll actively retweet something like that. I tend to try to retweet things I think are good, but my Twitter followers might not have seen. And so that tends to be, things from people with a lot fewer followers who are often a lot earlier career, et cetera. Yeah, I think, I mean, so you raised this question of whether the hierarchy problem might be um, better on Twitter. Um, But I think at the very least, the hierarchy on Twitter is different than it is within the field outside of Twitter. Um, And that in itself, I think, has a benefit because, okay, let's say that, you know, in non-online academia, you know, the hierarchy is built on the things that we all recognize, like prestige of institution and, you know, seniority and other, you know, markers of academic success and fame. Um, but I think on Twitter, although I, I think those things still probably matter, I think there are other things that determine um, who's at the top of the Twitter hierarchy. So, I mean, uh, the person who wrote the letter mentions those loud on Twitter, right? And although 
that sounds like it could be an unremarkable thing. Like some people who are allowed on Twitter spend a lot of time thinking about like really like interesting um, things to say. Like they, I think, like cultivate this Twitter identity that takes them time and that doesn't necessarily depend on these other sort of more institutionalized forms of status. So at the very least, you can have two hierarchies that are slightly different and that gives people a chance to get recognition in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I also think like the, um, so I, I would say to, to people who are active on Twitter, who have a lot of followers or things like that, what's, I 100% co-sign on what Samin said that like, looking for opportunities to amplify perspectives and people that, that you know, you think are interesting and, and to sort of diversify what you're, what you're doing. Um, you know, I also think that there, there are ways, like if you're a, if you're new to social media and you don't, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're new and you're like famous offline, like people will jump on and follow you. But if you're just like, you know, an early career researcher and you're new to social media in the same way that like at a conference, you, you know, we talk about how in traditional networking, there's a lot of value in peer networking and there's a lot of value in sort of like let, letting network emerge from substantive interactions rather than being a thing you try to force to happen. And so like, you don't have to like, like you can, you know, if you're, if one way to sort of build a Twitter network is to interact with people and that should include not just sort of expecting the high degree accounts to all immediately follow you back, but to interact with other people and those conversations will, creep across people's accounts and that kind of thing. So I do think that there, you know, that if I was giving like quote unquote advice, that would be it. But I, I would, you know, I do think that there is a, a legitimate issue to say that like, we don't want this to just turn into another exclusive club. I mean, th this is why the, you know, the issue, which I think the, the letter writer raised sort of, um, uh, of like, preprints and publications and, and things like that, that when people, and, and so this is now I'm broadening beyond social media, because I think this also encompasses traditional forms of sort of prestige and recognition. But I think there, you know, there are a lot of utopian ideas about like, let's get rid of journals and, and, uh, you know, just everybody posts preprints and, and that kind of thing, or we keep journals, but we, you know, we make preprints the first line of distribution. And I do worry about both uh, um, the traditional forms as well as the newer forms of kind of visibility and hierarchy advantaging some people for not substantive reasons. And so, I, you know, I mean, one of the nice things about a journal is that, like, you submit it and it's somebody is obliged to spend some time reading what you sent in mm -hmm. and, and think about it. And when you like tweet a preprint, uh, nobody's under the obligation to, to click on it. And so there, there is something about those more kind of structured, formal, traditional institutions that has the potential to do good as well as all the ways that we know that they can be problematic. Mm -hmm. I think that like, joke about Instagram is also relevant because like when I started using Instagram, I used it just to filter my pictures and I didn't follow anybody. And then like, so I still follow very, very few people. And I imagine there's some people who are offended that I didn't follow them back or things like that. And I think there might be some people who use Twitter also in like a non-dialogue kind of way. Like they just want to share things once in a while. And I do think like we should be thinking through how we're using Twitter. We should be thinking if we're, if we're only promoting ourselves or only amplifying our own stuff and we have a big platform you have a responsibility to think about that. But I do think something to keep in mind that different people might be using it for different purposes. And so you might try to interact with somebody and it turns out they just don't respond. So I often don't, like I might start a conversation and then drop out of it just because I, I'm not using Twitter that day or I, whatever. So like, I think it's just something to keep in mind too, that different people might have very different ways and whatever rules they impose on themselves about how they use Twitter or other yeah. social media. So there's, there's, there's one uh, very famous psychologist who I won't name, uh, but his last name rhymes with Schminker. And uh, it's like very clear to me that um, he like ha uses either, and he might not even do this himself, but that the tweets that are coming out of that account are scheduled. They're, you know, they, they look like they're from a PR firm 
maybe, or just at least sort of thought and planned in advance, and that this is not somebody who's using Twitter to have conversations or things like that, which is like totally fine, whatever. But one of the, this is just kind of like one of the funny things that happens when you schedule tweets is that like every once in a while, a tweet will come out when all of Twitter is talking about something. And Mm -hmm. there have been a few clankers that like, (laughs) just something has come out and like, I'll look at it and I'll be like, okay, like, you know, like, you know, okay, Steven Pinker, that's who I'm talking about, obviously. But, um, you know, he's got this whole, like, this 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 whole thing he's talking about, about how, like, the you know, over very long stretches of time, like, a lot of things about the world are getting better. And, and like, it's a serious point, and people debate about it, but whatever, it's a serious point. But, like, when a tweet comes out about that, when there's just been, like, a natural disaster or, like, you know, something, whatever, mm-hmm. it's like, dude, read the room. Anyway, um, it's I, I'm not blaming him for that because that's just kind of how he chooses to use Twitter. But I think that's a good indication of, like, yeah, there are some people that use it. I mean, that's sort of, like, an extreme form, right? That's somebody who's just – they're using it as kind of, like – you know, almost like PR and, and that's not how they choose to spend their time and that's fine. And if, if you were trying to like have a substantive conversation with him on Twitter, it's probably not going to work. Cool. Should anyway. We, all right. Okay. Well, ho- hopefully we've helped. It, it would be interesting. I, I mean, I would be interested if, if like from early career people who have sort of like had found Twitter to be useful to hear from them kind of like what are some of the things that you've done or what are also what are some of the things that other people have done that that you know have been helpful to you so um you know yeah please please uh give us some feedback if if you've got it um and yeah you can email us uh with that or or with anything else letters at the com. Um, we are on iTunes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can rate us on iTunes. Uh, our Twitter is at BlackGoatPod. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. And our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. So for this episode, we did something a little different. We recorded on two different days. So next up is our main topic where we talk about conferences. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. We are going to be talking about conferences today, and uh, our, our gimmicky clickbaity framing is why you shouldn't go to conferences. But we thought it would be interesting to consider a couple of different arguments that we've heard people make against conferences in general or against conferences as they're currently done and conceived. And why don't we just jump right into the first of these, which is something that's been getting... I feel like- First, I have to caveat it by saying I just did my 2017 taxes, so I had to count how many business-related trips I went on. Do you want to? Can you guess <laughs> how many business? Does does a trip? Okay, so if you fly to one place and then fly to another place and then fly home, is that two trips? It's two trips if they're both related to work. Yeah. My guess is thirty-two. Thirty. Wow. Yeah. Very close. See, I do remember. Like, <laughs> I don't remember where you go. Yeah. You have a good reason not to remember where I am. <laughs> I was going to say, are we going to um, say what our position is on whether you should or shouldn't go to conferences? Should yes. we keep that a secret or should we reveal it at the end? I think people will be shocked to hear what <laughs> yeah. Samin's position is. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like I want to well, know where you guys where you guys stand before we go into the because otherwise, well, I, I, I think that I, I mean, I think probably some of these arguments that we're going to cover are going to be pretty persuasive. So I think I might end up feeling like I should be anti-conference, but I'm not. I would be really sad if we got rid of conferences, and I think they're important. Yeah, I mean, I go to conferences, <laughs> so I guess I'm pro. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I'll be persuaded. Yeah, that's right. I think we're all episode. like playing devil's advocate this episode, which is going to be interesting. Yeah. I just keep looking at carbon. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, I feel like such a jerk. Yeah. Well, should we start with that one? Because that, that's one that's been brought up a lot, which is the, you know, and, and so, Samin, do you know how many um, 
gallons of that dinosaur <laughs> you are responsible personally responsible last year uh, or how many how many yes Sanjay what about rise? your kid how many um, inches of ocean rise are you responsible for because you had a kid <laughs> um, I mean just the fart jokes alone probably account for like three quarters of an inch no yeah I mean um, it's it's a totally legitimate criticism I think that it's extremely inefficient to fly places and yeah the carbon footprint's probably huge I used to um, buy carbon offsets and now I just make large donations to various kinds of charities throughout the year to ease my conscience. Um. Mm-hmm. So when, when you think about carbon footprint, I think there's there's like the individual level consideration and, and you know, things like buying carbon offsets can can maybe address that. Um, but that's you know, that that's not an option mm-hmm. for a lot of people like conferences are expensive enough as it is. And I think they're you know the, the systemic question comes up, like, should we still be organizing our field in this way? I mean, it, in some ways, it's kind of like journals, right? Like, we invented journals as a means of communication back when, you know, printing things on dead tree pulp was the, the sort of the technology of the day and the way for people to communicate. And now journals, we're kind of changing our concept of journals and even of the whole idea of an article because we have new, new ways of doing that. And you sort of think like why were why were conferences invented? Why were meetings invented? It was because you know back in the day like there was you had to write people letters and and you didn't get to see people face to face and you had this sort of infrequent low content communication and now we have all this technology. So does that change? Like if you think of like what's the point of a conference? Like could we be doing that in a lower impact way? Yeah, I. I mean, I'm trying to envision what the alternative model would be i think it's important for for psychologists to interact with each other i think um but i yeah i don't know what the alternative is like i'm imagining something where people are giving i don't know com- uh, presentations over skype and people are i guess you could completely eliminate um academic talks that are given to a, a widespread audience but that doesn't sound that satisfying. I mean, for me, that's the thing that is um, why the reason that I wouldn't want to give up conferences is that I feel like it's important to have personal relationships with your colleagues who are in other places and conferences seem like a good way to do that. Yeah, I think they're less and less about dissemination of information now that we have the internet and so many ways to decide. Like you could put up a YouTube talk and get pretty much the same even if you wanted to give it in talk format you could do that um so i i think the if there is a point in getting all together in person it's less about disseminating your results and more about the informal stuff that happens in between the talks or when you skip the talks right yeah i'm not even sure that that's all that different i mean and i mean i sort of feel two kind of opposite things you know which is like doing I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of the discussion over like online education and like, oh, we can just have, you know, like le- the lecture is dead. We can have videos and whatever. It's like lectures haven't died. There's something about being sort of physically present that if, even affects learning um, and, you know, affects how much how you process information and, and the feel of that. And you know, the, you know, the, the big concern in a lot of online education is it's just going to become stratified where, you know, the rich and well-off will continue to go to traditional universities and, and online will be used to give a second-rate version to other people. And I, I would worry about that with mm-hmm. conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, going in the other direction, I also like, I don't know that they were ever that much about dissemination. Yeah. And some of that is like an age effect, right? Like probably for all three of us, they've personally yeah. gotten less about dissemination, but that's like right, a normal, right. as you get older thing, you know, you're like a first year grad student and you're like, I have to go to every single right. session, go to something. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I was starting off, like talking to faculty and they'd be like, you know, I went to one talk the whole conference. Um, and, you know, I, you know, hung out with my buddies the rest of the time. And, and that was that was pre, you know, pre Skype and pre YouTube yeah. and all that. I think that leads to the question of like whether conferences equalize things more than they would otherwise be or are like in accentuating the hierarchy of people who can't afford to go there, or the people who aren't giving talks or, you know, I, th- I think I'd, 
I struggle with that a lot. Like in some ways, you know, I feel like especially when I was an early graduate student, I met a lot of people at conferences. It, it was like the main way to, you know, meet new people and lo- be exposed to new things and so on. But I was lucky enough to be able to go. Um, so I don't know. I, I think at the time I felt like they were a nice opportunity that were that where you had the chance to interact across hierarchies more than you might in other contexts. But, yeah. but I think it's more complicated than that. I do well, yeah, think I that your point, Sanjay, about um, how they change over time is important because I it's not just about disseminating information. I think that when I went to conferences as a graduate student, they were also like a a source of inspiration. And I feel like that still a little bit. Um, but I think when you are sort of like working on, let's say you're working on your dissertation and, you know, a lot of that is sort of like work where you're writing on your own or you're analyzing data um, and you get like really tunnel vision-y about one project. Like there's something very nice about going to a conference and seeing all of these other ideas that are out there and talking with other people and the atmosphere at conferences is kind of energizing. So I always used to feel that way, even if like I could have gotten that information in a YouTube video or. Yeah. It's hard to imagine, for example, like SIPs becoming a society without there having been conferences. I think like you want to feel like a community you want to, yeah, like have the energy of being all in the same place. I think that's what gave the momentum for SIPs as a society to exist. So I, I think there's a lot of like morale boosting or something, yeah, re-energizing, something like yeah. that that happens at conferences. And that's a good point too, is that like, I think m- we have been talking about sort of a traditional format of conference, which I think makes sense for this discussion. But um, I think it would be very difficult to accomplish a conference like SIPs, not in person. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels trickier than than a series of talks. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like the overall bottom line about the argument that it's expensive, like society-wise, like carbon footprint, and personally for some people, as I agree, I think those are really legitimate criticisms. I'm just not convinced that that means overall they're not worth it, because I do feel like a lot of positive things come out of conferences too. And so I think we should absolutely acknowledge the cost and we should talk about whether they're worth it or not. But I, I don't think saying that there's these huge costs makes it very, very clear that therefore they're bad. Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, the personal costs really raise questions about access and equality, because that's, you know, those, those costs are, I want to say personal, I mean the per person, because for some people, they're not personal, you have a grant, or you have an institution that pays for it. And, and for other people, it's coming out of their own pocket, they're, they're redirecting some of their, their wage, if they even get one, you know, for students, they, they might be taking this out at their own expense. And, you know, and so that, that sets up a different set of issues. The, the carbon impact one is, is kind of like, well, that, that's like a collective problem uh, primarily, uh, um, whereas the, like, the cost effect hits different people to different degrees. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, uh, you know, and, and especially, and it, it brings in like regional differences, right? Like conferences tend to get organized in the U.S. and Europe because that's where psychology is concentrated. But then it, you know, it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle because then if you're in the U.S. and Europe, you get to go to conferences, you get to be part of the conversation, part of the the activity. And if you're in other parts of the world, um, you know, if you're in Asia or South America or Africa, it's harder to, you know, be part of that because they're not happening near you. I think that leads in pretty well to our second potential criticism of conferences which was expressed really well i think by brad love on twitter should we just read his tweet yeah go for it okay so he wrote it was in response to someone else's tweet so this is a reply so he said too much to say on twitter but just look at the conference it's a ton of parallel tracks of hit and miss quality to suck in sufficient numbers of junior researchers into a pyramid scheme in which they pay tribute to baby boomer club members awarding each other prizes and full disclosure i liked this tweet i mean i like twitter like favorited is that the right word this tweet um yeah and when he wrote that i was like oh shit that's true <laughs> well it kind of yeah. it's like a nice we'll, we'll link this in the show notes maybe we'll even quote it but it's a it's a nice distillation it's just like all your all your cynicism about conference prestige sort yeah. of like boiled down into a tiny little like concentrated dose there 
Yeah. In my mind, he had used the phrase idol worshipping, but it turns out he didn't actually. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of those, like, schema consistent falsehood things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Let's talk about keynotes, because, I mean, let's break this down to some of the different pieces, right? Like, I, I remember as a graduate student being, going to so many, I mean, not so many, going to several before I got jaded really fast, keynotes. And they were not what I thought they were going to be. I, you would go and it would be this person that you were like, I totally recognize that person's name. I learned about him in Intro to Psych. And you show up and it's the same shit you learned about in Intro to Psych, you know, five, 10 years ago that was work that was done 20 years ago. And it's like, why did I show up for this person's talk to learn all the stuff I already knew? And And there are some people I've seen who don't do that. So one of my... Somebody that I'll go to a keynote every time he gives one is Chuck Carver. Because every time I've seen Chuck Carver give like a big keynote talk or an award talk, he talks about something new. He'll talk about speculative stuff. He'll talk about this is what I'm working on lately. But most people don't do that. They It's like, I'm and, and I mean, award speeches especially, but, but even keynotes oftentimes, it's just like, here's my greatest hits and here's my hand wavy, you know, how I'm, you know, kind of summarizing my career talk which is like it would be one thing if it was a job talk and that's kind of what you're supposed to do but you're at a specialist conference with a bunch of people who already know your stuff I want to know what you're working on now and I mean I think a, a lot of times it's like they're not working on anything now anymore because they're you know they're they're old and they're resting on their laurels or they're now a dean of something or and not doing research or whatever sometimes they're just like a one-trick pony and their lab is still just pumping out new variations of the thing that got them famous. So just to play devil's advocate, um, I think keynotes generally do get um, the highest attendance, right? Is it just because people people's expectations are... Yeah, I think a lot of conference organizers feel like they have to have keynotes. I think my impression, having been on a few program committees and executive committees, stuff like that, is that it's like a non-negotiable part for a lot of people. And I think they assume that it's a big draw. They want the keynotes to be on like the very first advertisements for the conference that go out. So they think that it's going to draw people to come to the conference. I don't know if that's true or not. They do, I think, get good attendance. Yeah, they're... But partly because they're, they're programmed against nothing often. They're like the only thing that doesn't have like nine other things tracked against mm-hmm. it. Yeah, when it's a plenary session and that's the only thing going on, then a lot of people show up and that, yeah, they do, they use the names... Like, I mean, that that's you, you look at like APS and they start like months and months before the conference. They'll just put out, you know, these press releases and these announcements that'll just be like headshots of the famous people that are going to speak at the conference, maybe with a title. And, you know, and the title doesn't tell you anything about what they're actually going to talk about. And that's how they're advertising the session. And, it, you know, and, and there are there are good ones. I've definitely seen people try to do interesting, creative things with the format. But a lot mm-hmm. of times they're, um, I, I, I just have been to too many that haven't been. And so now I, I, I mean, I still go to them sometimes, but I'm, I'm much more picky about which ones I go to because that thing Brad was talking about in the tweet does feel like they're just, a lot of times there are these kind of prestige celebrations. And, you know, and I think they're also like they're sometimes that's kind of appealing to some people who want to go and like see this person that they've always admired their work. But I'm I've just so often been disappointed when it's a famous person I've admired who I'm like, they don't have anything new to say. But is that specific to keynotes? I feel like anytime I've admired somebody, they've, they've ended up disappointed <laughs> right. in me. Like it's just Maybe not they're doing good that to in their symposia people. too. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I agree with everything that that Brad Love says in this tweet, but also I think you could replace conference with like the field of psychology. Um, (laughs) I just like, I think it's all true, but I'm just not sure. And actually I think you could make an argument that these things are exacerbated at conferences, but I'm not sure that's true. I think it's an argument to not necessarily go to the keynotes at conferences. Like don't be sucked in just because they're famous names or whatever. Like think carefully about how you spend your time at conferences. You paid to be there. You don't have any obligation to anybody to go to something just because they're advertising it a lot or it seems like you should go. Like your time might be better spent talking to a peer about a potential collaboration or just going to the poster Mm -hmm. session and talking to random people than going to the keynote. I certainly have started going to fewer and fewer talks and especially keynotes, but also just regular talks and doing more, trying to meet new people, trying to talk to people who I haven't heard of. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So let's let's talk. Let's grab another phrase from the tweet: parallel tracks of hit or miss quality. So <laughs> so this is something that I think a lot of conferences face this dilemma. Which and I I know that when you know when I was involved, I mean I did I chaired program for SPSB. So I mean you did that as well, right? Mm-hmm. And and then afterwards, I you know when I was when I was on the board, this gets discussed a lot, which is people complain if the acceptance rate is too low. Like if it's really hard to get into the conference, understandably so. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but then the way you, if if a lot of people want to go to your conference, the the way you know, there's only so many ways you can, you know, only only so many dials you can turn, and each each of those has costs. So you either make the conference a day longer, or you have more parallel tracks. And and the higher the acceptance rate, the more hit or miss the quality is going to be. And, and so this is, you know, I, I sort of, I feel for conference organizers who face this, but, you know, there yeah. are like, there are a lot of conferences that I've been to that have had too much. And it's also, it's a really difficult thing because then like, if you schedule two things at the same time that would attract the same crowd, people, you know, people complain that like, oh, I can't go to everything I want to see. And it's like, well, yeah. if you'd gone to everything, most of it would have yeah. sucked. But. I mean, I think this is, again, like to echo what Alexis said earlier, this is kind of not specific to conferences. You could say this about psychology. It's like, you know, a bunch of parallel publications or journals of hit or miss quality. So the same problems that apply to peer review apply to conference selection. So when I was co-chair of the SPSP program, one of the things we instituted, well, we did, we did two things that I'm I'm really happy we did, and I think there's a lot more that could be done. One is insist that sample size be reported in the abstracts so that that the reviewers have at least that information. And I think there's a lot of other information, obviously, that would be important to have, but that's something easy to do. And the other was blinding the reviews so that the people who selected the symposia didn't know who the authors were when they were choosing talks, which I think is controversial. For it's, I understand the controversy more for conference presentations than for journal articles, but I still think overall it was a good thing. But I think we could ask ourselves, like, are there other things we would like to change or things that maybe work in peer review that should be applied to conference acceptance criteria? I mean, the the whole idea of, like, what do you accept conference submissions on in psychology? So, like, other fields, like computer science and some other fields where people actually submit an entire paper... And, and that's, you know, in, in computer science, that's how publication primarily works, is that conference proceedings are bundles of actual papers, and you submit the paper, and it's accepted, and then you give a talk about it. Um, there you can evaluate the work, and of course that works well in CS, because they can write shorter papers, um, uh, you know, although I guess we could too, maybe. But, but like our conventional format right now is like you write an abstract, and, and I mean, I think like working in the sample size helps get you some more substantive information. But I think it's really hard to do a mm-hmm. scientific evaluation of just an abstract. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, that raises a larger question of like, which, you know, we we're talking about before, like, what's the point of conferences? Is it to be presenting like an airtight scientific case anyway? Or is it to be giving an advertisement for the paper? Like, this is maybe this is like a little bit too hot takey. But like, maybe, you know, should we be factoring in gives a good mm-hmm. talk? as part of a in which we don't at all and I don't know how we would evaluate that anyway what do you mean we don't at all I think we do I think when it's not blind people do when it's yeah when it's not blind right although well no okay I think we we evaluate maybe gives a good talk but I think more often it's name recognition prestige yeah but that probably correlates pretty highly because those people like to have attention and I've seen lots of famous people give shitty that's true on presentation terms shitty talks but I think Um, often the choosing the famous people is justified on the grounds that they gave good talks or things like that. I mean, they will be chosen it, anyway. That's true. But it's that they'll draw, which is different than giving a good yeah, talk. Yeah, I think it's both. <laughs> As, but... Witness my disappointment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. I mean, I think like what's what's the point of what's the point of all this anyway? Yeah. You know, it comes back to like because you know talks. I mean, posters in some way. I, I I got cynical on posters for a while, and I've kind of been coming back around. Like, and you know what I tell my students when they're doing posters is like this isn't a scientific report this is like a visual aid for conversations and I think especially at smaller conferences poster sessions can be really interesting I think at larger ones you often have this feeling like you're standing in this giant cavern and people are passing you 
But when I've been to like small conferences, poster sessions are often well attended and, and there's lots of good conversation. Um, but it's like there, it's like out on the surface. It's like you're not, you can't fit everything you need to into a poster. So just like make it a cool visual aid and have some interesting conversations. And to some extent, talks are this weird thing because you're not, like people might talk to you afterwards, but the format itself is not a like conversational format, but they are kind of like, performative advertisements for for your work either you know it's out already or it's going to be coming out someday and and you know and maybe there's nothing wrong with that maybe that's kind of what it's about I think it's interesting to consider the talk format in general right so um this is not completely unique to conferences but that's the predominant form well aside from posters of presenting at conferences um and I think there might be an argument to make that the talk format encourages some things that are undesirable, although I will again, I'll sort of like table my bias and say that I actually really like talks. And I think that like um, effective talks are are really impressive and really important. Um, but uh, but I do think I find that when I'm writing talks, it's hard to maintain precision um and communicate all of the information that you want to communicate and there's also i think a push towards sort of sensationalizing your results um and there's some ideal i think um where you're highlighting the relevance of your work and you're making it accessible and you're not overselling it um but in general i think that's that's not what talks typically push for yeah, and we don't leave much time for Q&A, which if, if anything is going to happen that's like interesting and whatever, I feel like True. really in, in principle, if the idea is to present work in progress and get feedback before it becomes a publication, then there should be lots of time for Q&A. It's something we're amazingly bad at. No matter how hard the symposium chair tries to leave time for Q&A, it almost never happens. I think some other disciplines are much, much better at that. Yeah, I, <laughs> Q&A is, is kind of, uh, it's a complicated topic too, right? Because it's not like when there is time for Q&A, it's always like really substantive. Like mm-hmm. people, I, I just saw someone on, I, I guess, is it uh, the American Political Science Association is, is happening right now or just happened right before we record this. And I saw someone, uh, a political scientist who I follow tweeting uh, like, hey guys, what's the longest question you've heard at APSA? Mine was... 12 minutes long wow. <laughs> like somebody spent 12 minutes asking a question which is like okay that's a bit of an outlier but you know yeah um but yeah people I, I don't know I, I think like the like I think if we wanted interactive formats if like if that's the goal we could think about changing it up to where I mean you know we talked about SIPS earlier SIPS has a radically different format where it's not you're presenting something from yourself at all the whole form of it for the, for the most part is like let's work together on a project but you can imagine a, a like some different kind of structure where you know there's a paper circulated in a roundtable discussion or something like that rather than a talk and then like a couple minutes Q&A if that if that was what you wanted yeah I've heard of that in law I think they often have small get-togethers where they circulate papers before and they all read each other's papers before I mean I personally like I like doing that in writing better than in person, like both for giving criticism, but especially receiving criticism. I think I want time to digest it and so on. So, but I think there there might be people who would prefer doing it in person and would like that format. But it's hard also to uh, like give all the details you would need to give good criticism in a talk format. So I think there's a lot of advantages to doing like serious criticism and feedback in, in written formats rather than in talks yeah i'm not sure yeah like i guess i agree that even ideal q a at a talk is probably not the best format for giving and receiving criticism i mean the thing about a talk that i think a lot of people forget or they don't want to they don't feel fully comfortable with because we're we're academics and this isn't what we do or why we're here but is it's a performance Mm -hmm. and it's a weird performance. And when you say that, people immediately like shudder and, and they're like, ew, gross. And, you know, I, you know, um, no, mine isn't a performance. Like, yeah, it's always a fucking performance. It's never not a performance. Uh, but it's a performance with a genre. And it's a it's a genre that has rules of what make for a good performance and a bad performance. And it's a performance that's for an audience 
that has expectations and wants certain things and and like persuading people of an argument is part of the rules of the genre so it's not i think some people take the performance the wrong way and they're like oh i have to put on a show i have to like be dazzling and cute and or funny or or whatever it's like yeah be all those things but in in the service of of what the genre is about but i think you know if we if we if we were willing to more often say up front talks or performances now let's talk about the standards of a good performance and that that doesn't make it dirty that any more than like saying opera is a performance means that opera is like cheap or whatever um you know and so what what are we performing and what's the audience supposed to be getting out of this and why i think like and why (laughs) yeah like they're supposed to be i think getting excited about new ideas i think having interest having something to have interesting conversations about maybe not in the q a but mm-hmm. tell some you know this, so maybe, this is often like at conversations like people go did you see any good talks?" Right, right. and that often starts really good conversations so maybe it should be like everyone gives a lightning talk and then most of the conference is unstructured time to go talk to the people whose lightning talk sounded interesting and find out more about what they're doing and see if you have interests in common and things like that well, yeah, I mean, data blitzes are really interesting yeah. because some of I think some of the best discussion comes out of data blitzes mm-hmm. because it's like they're they're so short that nobody could possibly try to squeeze everything in. And so people kind of shift into that mode of like, oh, well, I'm just going to like, yeah, like dangle a few and then come talk to me to have a conversation. Yeah. And people people explicitly move into that mindset. And, and often there and also like if you're bored of something, it's done in three minutes mm-hmm. so, <laughs> or fun to sit through for that reason. So too. I have a question to me. like, so you seem to sort of be like questioning the point of the performance aspect of talks. And I think probably part of what you're questioning is like the fluff. Like, would you prefer that papers be just facts? <laughs> like, do you do you like it when papers are like? well written is that do you think that adds something yeah obviously i care about writing i care about the structure especially like i think a a paper should be laid out in a way that you can follow and so on but i do think most discussion sections detract from the paper rather than add to it the way they're written now i don't think it has to be that way but right now i feel like yeah I'm, i'm being sold something instead of like a thoughtful discussion of different ways of interpreting it or whatever and i feel like talks are are you know all of the bad things that a discussion section of a paper is and not much of the meat and bones, like the stuff you want in the method and results. Like it's so common to see talks where there's no details about the method and even the results are barely presented numerically. Like it's just a graph with, without any, like the axes aren't even labeled to where you could interpret the values in the graph or things like that. And the more senior people are, the more they do that. That drives me nuts. <laughs> like w- when you have the keynote, it's just like, just trust me, we found the effect. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, grad student and early career talks often end up being some of the best. Like if you ask me after a conference, mm-hmm. what were the, your favorite talks that you saw? Often it's those. And, and they're more variable. So, you, you know, you get more kind of forgettable stuff too sometimes. But like... I think grad students often feel like they like they have to make their case because they can't ride on their prestige and and a lot of them rise to the occasion and and you know yeah it, whereas yeah like those sort of like I'm famous and I don't have to convince you because I know I'm right kind of talks just drive me up a wall. Should we spend a few minutes talking about what the alternatives would be if we decided that people shouldn't go to conferences anymore or there shouldn't be conferences? Yeah, let's do that. What what is the answer to that? I don't know. I mean, Samin, you're you're ready to go from thirty to zero, right? Yeah, right. You're, you're done. <laughs> no, I mean the thing is, I wouldn't stop traveling, so I don't care too much about conferences, and I kind of treat conferences the way we're saying now. Of like, I don't go there for the keynotes or even for the talks so much. I go there to meet people and meet with people that are you know both meet people I already know and meet new people. And I'm yeah, I think like for me the lesson is don't like make sure that you're actively resisting this this like tendency for conferences to become this pyramid scheme where junior people pay tribute to older people like i wish i could go back and change my behavior when i was more junior like i'm embarrassed at how i fell for like this you know the idol worshiping and stuff like that i think like many people but now when i see it grad students do it i want to shake them and be like no like you're gonna regret it later but we all have to go through that i think and i'm sure i still do it more than i realize 
Um, but I think there's a way to make conferences work for you instead of falling into this trap, if it is a trap, of like sucking in sufficient numbers of junior people to pay for the glorifying the senior people. So at least at a minimum, I think, be conscious and make the conference work for you. But I think another thing I would say is like the conference organizers should listen to junior people and ask what do junior people want to get out of it instead of, yeah, like those are the, you know, most conferences, the majority of attendees are at least pre-tenure and often like it's like majority grad students and postdocs. So I think we should be kind of starting over wiping the slate clean and asking what would a conference that benefits those people the most look like? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, when like a lot of, you know, a lot of what more senior people say they get out of conferences is the networking slash connection stuff. It's seeing, and, and, and that's, there's like a Matthew effect to that, right? Well, I mean, for me, so a lot of it is just seeing the same people every time because conferences are the only time I see them, but then also meeting new people through them because they're, they're people I'm going to like. And so I think the challenge for conference organizers is like, how do you create connections for the new people? And so I know like mm -hmm. SPSB started doing a like first time attendees reception. Um, and, and I think I've heard good stuff about that. The diversity reception at SPSB is like rocking every time I've gone to it because mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's gra very grad student focused. Um, everyone's there with kind of like a reason of supporting these these graduate students and and so you know events like that i think that's one of the things that a lot of people got out of SIPs and mentor the first couple of times yeah me mentor lunches are huge mm -hmm. a lot of people got that out of sips the first few times and uh um, i think that's something sips now that sips is going to be at number four that it's going to have to start thinking about more is like at first everyone was new and so everyone was kind of in the same boat but now they're like you know, the people that have been there every single time are going to be in a different place than the first timers. And, and so, like, how do you make sure that... But I think just the format of that conference was what a lot of people liked, that they got connected to people with common interests that they didn't already know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, like, I don't know if, you know... It's funny because when, like, a lot of people have to, in order to get reimbursed, they have to put in... A piece of paper to their university that says I gave a talk or whatever and so it's sort of funny how like I, I feel like there's this lack of recognition of what conferences are actually for where it's like no there's there's probably value in sending somebody like dissemination is fine and that is part of conferences but like there's plenty of really important reasons to send people to conferences besides dissemination of a specific work product that you know that they did um, but, you know, institutions don't really seem to recognize that. And so if you did something alternative, like if you said we're going to have, you know, meetups that don't have much of an agenda, I think a lot of people, their institutions might not even recognize those as totally legit in the same way that conferences are. But that would be an alternative. Mm-hmm. Like like-minded people getting together. Right. Yeah, it's it's funny, like some of the solutions that solve one problem create others, right? So um, if you want to sort of address the prestige issue, then maybe you don't want this like giant conference um, like SPSP. But if you're trying to minimize carbon footprint, actually, like maybe it makes sense to have one giant conference where everyone goes instead of having like these, I mean, probably one of the things that's worse for carbon footprints, actually, maybe not, I'm not sure, um, is just having people go back and forth between institutions giving talks everywhere, right? <clears throat> Samin. <laughs> <laughs> right, like if, if you got everybody, they just have two flights, one there, one back, but they went for two weeks and everybody was there. Right. And then, you, you know, and then you wouldn't have to like have lots of little flights to little conferences and colloquia and that kind of thing. Right. Which doesn't sound that fun, but it does sound no. better for the environment. <laughs> it doesn't sound fun at all. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, and this is going to sound very self-serving and rationalizing, and it probably is. But I think another factor to weigh in deciding whether to go to conferences is how much you personally get out of it, both academically and personally and so on. So like, I would not stop traveling even if conferences stopped existing. And I'm very, very sorry to the environment, but I need that to be happy, just like some people need kids to be happy or whatever. And, and it sucks that some of our ne like things that we need to be happy are really costly to the environment. And we need to think about that and think about what we can do. And, you know, I, I do like try to take the train when I can and things like that. And I should do that more. 
Um, but I think for me, like, I, I like have this, yeah, like almost need to, to travel and see the people regularly that live far away and meet new people and so on. So that's a big part of it. Like for me, it's not just that I feel I ought to go or it's good for my career or things like that. It also fulfills something that I haven't found anything else that, that, that fulfills that need. Yeah. Um, so I think it's something to factor in and everybody's going to be different on that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important. The flip side of that is that it's important not to organize our field in a way that requires people to travel because some people mm-hmm. don't enjoy that. Some people can't for a right, whole variety right. of political reasons. Sometimes some people literally right. can't travel for political reasons because their identity or their immigration status or something else will, you know, or their country of origin will prevent yeah. that. Some Some people... It's a real cost if, you know, and probably more so for women than for men because women are more likely to be involved in childcare, although that shouldn't be the case, but that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the um, like, and so in some ways, at least, you know, when I look at the computer science model, for example, I'm like, well, at least, you know, like, we're not a field where in order, like, a paper means going to a conference, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could... It would it would definitely be a hit, but you you could have a productive career. It's not ruled out to have a productive career without traveling. Yeah. It's it, it's definitely harder, and it shouldn't be. But yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's also nice that we have multiple media, like social media, as well as conferences, and then traditional journals and things like that. I think it's important that we not make any one. Yeah, like I think it's good that if people don't participate in one medium, that it should be okay because there's a lot of legitimate reasons why they might not. Mm-hmm. I have a very important question, though, to clarify from our earlier discussion. Uh, and this is a really dumb question, but are fossil fuels actually made from dinosaur bones? No, no. <laughs> okay, so so I uh, um, I actually looked this up because I made a several years ago. So there's this kids' TV show called Dinosaur Train, and it's these dinosaurs that like ride a train to different adventures every week, and the the train is coal powered. And I made a joke about how the dinosaurs were like burning the dead bodies of their comrades to <laughs> run this train. And then somebody pointed me to this information that I ended up looking up. So it's mostly like plankton and shit. It's like, um, uh, yeah, so, so fossil fuels <laughs> okay. are the, the name. I mean, I guess, I guess everything's a fossil, but yeah, okay. no, it invokes this idea of like, when I think of fossils, I think of like large Dinosaur, bones. And apparently yeah, yeah. that's not yeah. really Good. what it okay, is. Okay, I'm it's, glad we clarified that. Yeah. <laughs> And my joke was ruined about the dinosaur train. Uh, anyway, um, well, that's probably a good place. <laughs> I mean, it's not a good place. To end, it's probably time to end. that. Pretty much sums it up. Yep. That sums it up. All right, burn dinosaurs or whatever. All right. Uh, well, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.